man, it's good to see you all. I want to thank Pastor Jeremy for, or Jerry for speaking a couple weeks ago and then for uh, Kristen and Brittany and Tracy for, for presenting on Mother's Day. I got to watch both of those services live. It just happened to work out where I was. I could watch them. And that was just fun to be part of the church, so I appreciate it. I appreciate the staff and the board and the church, just all of you working together. And uh, I did just get back from Israel, and um, I want to just thank you all for making that happen. And if you weren't part of all of that, a year ago, um, we had been here 10 years, so the church gave that trip to me, and I just, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful, grateful to the board, grateful to you. Uh, If you've never been... It's amazing to think about you're going to be someplace Jesus literally was. He was there. Now, for most of us as Americans, you know, if you've lived your whole life here or been to other countries, you know, Jesus didn't leave. He didn't go more than 200 miles from his place of birth. He was right there. And then the idea to be there, and if you've traveled in different places of the world, you kind of get this uh, perspective thing, you know, because we grow up in America and have things the way we have them. And I think traveling internationally is important because it just makes you so much appreciate our way of life and what we have here and I was talking to, you know, when, we, uh, when I landed in Dallas, I'd already been flying the flight from, because I stopped, I went through Egypt, so I had to fly from Cairo to Qatar, and then Qatar to Dallas. The, the flight from Qatar to Dallas was almost 16 hours, just one flight. So when you finally get to the U.S., it's just cool to be back home. It's just, there's nothing like home. But I, I did want to show you just a few things and talk to you a little bit about that trip, and I'm sure... Parts of this trip will now play into everything I do talk about because it was just such a life-affirming. And then, you know, just, you know, probably the biggest thing is to be able to not only be where Jesus was, but then to see how much Scripture comes alive because you're standing there. When you read where this is, I can picture it because I was there. I, I wanted to share a couple of pictures, if that's okay. What we did on this trip, we started in the very north of the country in Nazareth and then worked our way down to um, Israel or to Jerusalem. But, but being in Jesus' boyhood home, it's just amazing to think about. You know, the city of Nazareth today is one of the largest cities in Israel. It's, it's the largest Muslim city, the, the predominantly a Muslim city, 70,000 people. And there's a church there called the Church of the Annunciation, which comes from Latin. It's where the angel Gabriel came and spoke to uh, uh, Mary. And we could show you a couple of those pictures. It's actually the largest church in all of, his, all of the Middle East. It's the largest church. Uh, it's, it's an incredible building. What's interesting about it, too, is you, you can show those other pictures, too. But the, what's interesting about it is, um, you know, I, when, one of the things I wanted to see, I wanted to know, is this really the thing? Is this really it? Like, I don't want you just to show me something and say it might have been here. I want to know this is the place. Here's what's interesting in how they do that. As, as in Israel, everywhere, anytime they're going to build anything, there has to be an archaeologist on site to check because so much of that land has history underneath the dirt. So what they do is they check. And so in this case, uh, this is a very interesting situation because this place here uh, where Jesus' um, mother was born and where the, the, Mary, the angel came and spoke to her, what they do is they just take it and they look, okay, well, how long ago was there a church there? Well, there was a church there started in the first century. So they know that's where it was because after Jesus died and rose again and the church started to grow, then, then Christians started to say, well, where did Jesus, where was he born? And Well, they knew where he was born. People were still alive talking about it. Well, we know where he was and we know where Mary lived. So it's easy to trace that back. Now, because Israel was kind of run over by civilization after civilization, what they have to do is dig down, down, down. And so what they end up finding is first century artifacts. And then once they find that, so we're talking 2,000 years ago, 
It was kind of funny. Somebody on the trip said, what do you mean by first century? And it was cool. We had, a, we had a college professor on the trip. I would love to take you all. How many would want to go there? Anybody interested? All right. I think we could do that maybe in a couple of years. But the college presser, professor from Evangel, Dr. Uh, Nunnally, he was so kind. He said, he goes, well, as, as human beings, we kind of clump history into 100-year sections. And when we say first century, we're talking about the first one. After Jesus' birth. Um, that makes sense, right? So you're talking about the actual time period Jesus was alive. And what they found is a church there. And so uh, what, what had happened in a lot of those places is once the churches sprung up, the Roman government was trying to stamp out Christianity. So in certain cases, what would happen is the Roman government would then put down the church and then put a Roman temple over it. Well, that's easy to figure out. They were trying to squish the Christianity. And then what happened is uh, Constantine, uh, emperor in right around 310, 325, when he became a Christian and then turned the Roman Empire Christian, he gave his mom an assignment because Queen Anne, his mother, was already a Christian, and her assignment was to go and trace down these places. So it wasn't hard to do for her because a lot of times she would find these Christian sites under a Roman temple. So then they would take that away and build a new Christian church. So then the Byzantine Empire, what that became, and then the Muslims came in to destroy it. So you just have to keep going layer upon layer. So it's easy to verify a lot of these sites. I've got a couple pictures here of Caesarea, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean. This would be where Herod the, Herod the Great, the one who built the temple, the one who killed the babies, this Herod, this is what's left of his palace. He built this magnificent palace there. Even though Jerusalem would consider that the capital of of Palestine, he didn't want to be in Jerusalem, so he built himself this fancy palace. This stretches out into the Middle East or into the Mediterranean Sea there. You can see that foundation. The Romans developed this really cool thing, this cement that would harden up in water. Still today, we can't quite duplicate what they did, but they were able to do this, so he extended that out. Right there is a, is, is a mosaic on the ground. That design is from that time, so from the first century. It's 2,000 years old sitting there on the ground. What's cool about this, this area here at this palace this is where he, he was at, but it also became then the, the, the official Roman government seat for whoever was in charge wherever they were. So you remember when Paul was on trial, and then he was in trial in Jerusalem, and they were trying to attack him. So they, moved, they went out to Caesarea. This is where he would have stood trial. And he stood specifically in front of Festus at this point. And if you remember that story, at one point he says, well, I appeal my case to, to Rome, to Caesar. Well, then he was imprisoned here. And if you think about the timeline, he was imprisoned there for two to three years, and that gave Luke time to travel around and do all his interviewing to write his book of Luke. And this is also where Paul wrote a couple of his letters. It's just amazing. We went to Dan, which is in the far north of the country. It was sad because seeing some of the history, I know it might be a little hard to pick out there, but if you look at that, that's what's left. They found of an altar. This is a city gate here where the, the, the officials would sit. Uh, go ahead and show that next picture. Um, and then this is a, that is actually what's left of a Jewish synagogue. And you can see how it's kind of in the shape of a square. One of the things I found is that perspective is interesting. We have this huge building here that seats, um, seats 750 people. Well, they didn't do it like that. And most of the time their meetings would have been way smaller. Do you see that little round divot right there? The, the titles are just a little bit off, but that little divot is where the gate would have pivoted that would have been for that town. That's how deep down they found. And that, that right there is super old, way, way past the uh, first century. Let's just keep going. We, we got to stand on Mount Carmel, 
where Elijah had the showdown with the prophets of Baal. I have some pictures here of other synagogues. This one's in Chorazin. Do you remember when Jesus said, um, Oh, you Chorazin, it would have been better for you? Remember he talked about that? This is a synagogue there, and this one was big. You can see how, see how two layers of seats right there for people to sit. And this was, and this is Magdala. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Like somebody's last name? So what do we call you? What are your names? So if I were to talk to one of you, let's just pick somebody, and I would say Greg of Lee Summit. Do we say it that way? Well, Mary Magdalene, Magdalene wasn't her last name. That's the town she was from. So you had to identify people from where they were from, Jesus of Nazareth, that kind of thing. Well, this synagogue, what's kind of cool about it is this is a first century synagogue. And so we know Jesus would have preached here. It said he preached in all those areas. So he would have been in that synagogue. It's just amazing to look at that and see the history that you're walking around there. Another cool thing is um, sometimes skeptics will say things like, well, we don't know for sure if this person lived or this person existed because we haven't found them. But you'll see there's kind of a picture of the Sea of Galilee. We watched as it was calm in the morning, and then by the afternoon, the winds came up, and uh, all of a sudden, we had three-foot little breakers rolling in. This boat right here, they found the Sea of Galilee, had, they had some droughts, successive years, and so it went really far down, and they actually dug this up, and they dated this to the first century. So that would have been a boat similar to what Jesus and the disciples would have would have fished out of or been in, or even when Jesus preached and they pushed him out in the boats so he could speak. We stood on the Sermon on the Mount location. It was right there. This is going to the Qumran, so we went and saw the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found in those canisters, just like that. This is how rugged that area is, and it's hard to see in this picture, but those little dark pock marks are caves. So you can see how they lasted for 2,000 years. Nobody was wanting to climb up there and look at caves just way out, in the, way out in the desert. So what's cool about this too is some of the things they found in those caves. One of them was they found a scroll of the book of Isaiah. So let's think about the timeline here. It was in those caves for 2,000 years. That scroll actually dates even further back. That is now the oldest scripture portion that we have in existence. And what's really cool about it is there's no significant changes between it and our modern copies. So what that means is people hand copying that scripture were that accurate. You can trust that Bible that you hold in your hand or even your phone Bible. I mean, it's, it is accurate. It's really, really cool. We did get to go to the Dead Sea. I didn't, I didn't put any pictures of us floating there, but it is surreal to be able to float like that. I did, I did have a picture of Masada. It's, you'll see it's just a mountain fortress way out in the desert. Actually, this was built by King Herod, great Herod the Great. He was a very... Um, he was a king who was afraid he was going to get overthrown all the time, so he built these fortresses around the, the land of Israel. He never actually even went to the fortress, they don't think. But here's what he did as a mistake. He supplied it so well that when the Jewish revolt happened that led to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, some of those uh, rebels ended up holding up in there, and they were able to hold off the Roman army for like three years just with the supplies that were there. And so it's, it's an amazing thing to see. We did get to go to the Temple Mount, or to Bethlehem, let me show Bethlehem first. And this is one of those churches, well, this is, <laughs> this is both. On the left is the Temple Mount, and you can see that's the Dome of the Rock, which is, a, is an Islamic church, a, a synagogue. And it's over a rock, which is bedrock up on the temple grounds, and which they is, believe is the rock that where Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. So, but if you know Islam, they claim it was Ishmael. And so you, you didn't really want to debate people there, but that's, that's what that was about. This is actually the, temp, the church in Bethlehem. 
what's, what's one of the many cool things about it, there's, there's different um, churches that have, have rights to this church. We have Greek Orthodox, you have an Armenian church, and then the, the Roman Catholics. You can see on this, though, you can see how these pillars, you know, they lit candles for thousands of years. So the soot was so dark that for years it was just, those columns were dark. And then they cleaned them recently. And then once they cleaned them, they found, uh, if you can see on there, it looks like graffiti. What it was is Christians who came into there during the Byzantine area, so been three, 300 to about 1,000. Um, during those years, they would write verses to each other. They would write things on the walls. They did, it wasn't graffiti in the way we think of graffiti. It was something holy that they thought they were writing up there. Uh, let's see what we have next, picture-wise. I, I love this part. On the Temple Mount, there's not much left because the Romans destroyed everything. And then because it's controlled by Muslims, a lot of it hasn't been invest, uh, uh, excavated. Or, but this is still there. And if you can see that outcropping of rock, that is bedrock. And that portion of that wall is built on what Ephesians talks about, the wall of partition. And what Josephus adds to that information is that was the wall that kept Gentiles from going into the temple grounds. And what's interesting is Jesus broke down that wall. He allowed all, most of us here, not Jews, so most of us are Christians because that wall was, was broken down, which is really cool. I think what we have next is a wailing wall, and uh, this is original from Jesus' time. It's one of the few things left up there. There's a lot of walls there, but they're not from Jesus' time. This one is. And so that's why people pray there. Most of the Jews who are praying there, they're not praying there because of Jesus. They're praying there because they would love to see Jerusalem back completely controlled by by Jews and that kind of thing. They're praying for their nation. We prayed there for other reasons, just because it's a place that is reminiscent of something that Jesus would have seen. Um, we got to see the Garden of Gethsemane in Bethlehem. Ah, this is kind of a cool spot. Do you see that bedrock right there? That would have been the exit that Jesus would have used from the temple grounds. So he would have walked on that rock because that would have been from the time of, of uh, Christ right there. Let me, let me tell you a couple cool things about that. And this is the Garden Gethsemane, which you can see from that rock, and, and vice versa. You can be in Gethsemane and see that part of the temple. Go ahead and show the next picture. I just want to see what it is real quick. These tombs, that's what I wanted to get to. And the Mount of Olives past them. You can see all of that. Well, actually, it's... Anyway, let me just explain this real quick. When Jesus would have been standing on that rock, let's say he stood there. Do you remember when he talked about... Uh, he was criticizing the religious rulers and said they're whitewashed sepulchers. What's really cool is those whitewashed, whitewashed sepulchers he's talking about were literally right there. They would have been like from here to the arboreties across the street, that far away, that close. So when he preached those sermons, he was pointing at things that everybody not only knew about, but they could see with their own eyes. That's what's so amazing about it. You're standing in places where Jesus literally stood, and things he saw and pointed out, they saw them. We also got to see the Church of the Sepulcher, they call it, and then which is also kind of cool. It's also the site of the resurrection. And, you know, it's, it's in a place where the, the caves where they would have buried Jesus is all built over with churches. That's kind of how you get into it today, but uh, what's really cool about it is you've had all these cave situations, and, and we know that Jesus was there. We know that he was there. So let me just, just give you some thoughts about this. You got to stand where he would have sat and taught, where he said certain things he would have pointed, and you could see them easily. When he wept over Jerusalem, he was looking at it. You can literally look down and see the whole city. It's incredible that way. When he crossed, you probably heard about the Kidron Valley, but he, when he went to pray in the garden, 
it would have been less than a 30-minute walk. It just, you could just walk there. It's right there. And then where he would have um, been sentenced to death, we could see all of that. All of that would have been within view. To me, it just blows my mind. On the way home, I got to go see where um, Jesus and his parents, they believe he stayed when they escaped Egypt when he was a baby. Um, I got to see where he grew up, where he preached, where he fed the 5,000. got to see all those things. It's just, it's just mind-blowing, honestly. And it puts so many things in context when you read Scripture and think, oh, I see that now. It just makes sense. All of that's history. And the thing about it is, when you think about why Jesus came, it wasn't just to give us history, and it wasn't just to stand there and look at old stones. I mean, there's so much, you know, in this civilization built on this and this and this. It wasn't about that. What it's about is relationship with him. What kept, I kept being amazed by is that God chose to, to send his son. Jesus literally left the glory of heaven to come to the earth to stand in this spot. And why? Because of us. He came to redeem humanity. What blows my mind is to think that God of glory cared enough about us that, that he would want a relationship with us. And because he wants a relationship, he sent his son to come and live in a place that wasn't super comfortable. He didn't live in one of those palaces. He, left, he lived in relative poverty. And the fact is, he did that because he wanted to. Because he wanted to be a, a person that we could all relate to, every single one of us. It's something that he wanted to experience with us. Ye- yesterday, how many of you got to go to the Send yesterday at all? I was there for about four hours or so, and uh, it was pretty amazing. And that whole event is, the whole idea is about commissioning people to send them out to talk about their faith. That's really what it's about. And I think about this, and I think about as, um, as Jesus was preaching, his mission was to redeem people for himself. He wanted relationship. So as he preached and taught, he was trying to convince them to follow him. And then as he left the earth, he turned to his disciples and says, I've trained you for this, guys. Now you go take this message to the world. That was literally his charge to them. And then that hasn't changed because that charge now extends to each one of us as Christians. I don't know about you, but there's times where I think, God, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm capable of that or worthy of that. Or I don't know if I really know what to say or how to say it. You know, but let's think about this for a minute. I bet you do know, you know the story. I mean, why did God come? Because he wanted relationship with us, right? And what is broken relationship? It's really just our sins have separated us from God. And the truth is, sins can't be removed by us doing good deeds or doing things to try to make it better. None of that does that. But Jesus paid the price for our sin and he rose again. He paid that price. And then everyone who trusts in him has eternal life. And that life starts now and lasts forever. That's the gospel. That's what he came to share. And I don't know about you, but when I think about you know, standing there and, and the idea that Jesus gave this great commission, let's read it real quick. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's good news. We're supposed to do that. And he talks about the nations. And he talks about the nations being, uh, it's hard sometimes for us to conceptualize, but he, he started with close at hand in Judea, and then he said Samaria, and then to the other most parts of the earth. He talks about our world. It's their world, but also your world. When I think about this, and I think about where we're sent, and what we're supposed to do, I believe really this is something that starts in the home, and then 
you know, if you're in school, at your school, or at your work, or just at the gas station, friends you have, family you have, neighbors across the, across the fence, across town, across the seas, all of that. So how does that actually work? So here's what I'm asking you today. I wanted to tie these two things together. You know, I got to see all these amazing things about Jesus and his time here with us. But I, I don't want it to just me do a slideshow. I don't want that kid, my dad, would come back and show us slides and we had to watch all those slides. I want to know what it matters and, and what the difference it makes. Here's what it makes. And it goes really with the send because the whole idea is that you are supposed to, me, I'm supposed to, every one of us are supposed to take this message and tell people. This is a life-giving, life-affirming, freeing message that literally changes everything. You know, it's sad. As I was traveling and and seeing different people and, you know, seeing so many people that are so lost, whether they're in Islam or just lost secular people, one of the things that kept overwhelming me is how many people don't know Jesus. Do you ever feel that way? As a plane is taking off, I love, I, I, I don't prefer the window seat, but if I am in the window seat, one of the things that I look at is how many homes there are. And the higher you get, the more my mind is blown every time. Because I just wonder, how many people in those homes know Jesus? How many people live in those homes and have never heard his name or don't know what he means? Or, or maybe their life is, is full of self, you know, life-controlling issues, whether it's substance abuse or family issues or maybe cyclical abuse in a family or whatever it is. And I just wonder, God, is there someone there who can tell them, someone who knows them? As I'm, as I'm walking through streets and seeing people and I just, I look on their faces and I wonder, do you know, do you know what difference Christ would make in your life? I don't know about you, but sometimes it's overwhelming. I mean, I'm praying and I'm thinking, God, do you want me to say something? If, I, if you do, what, what do I say? How do I start a conversation? What do I do? One, one of the things I was reminded of is in Corinthians, Paul talks about this. And what he's talking about is, at one point, people were saying, oh, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos. And, and what basically they were doing is giving credit to the people who had led them to Christ. And Paul addresses this. He says, after all, who is Apollos and who is Paul? We're only God's servants through whom you believed the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. Let's stop for a second. The Lord actually gives us all work, every one of us, you and me, every one of us. And here's his work. He says, I planted the seed in your hearts, and Apollos watered it. But God, it was God who made it grow. I, I want to stop right there for a second. Do you, do you see what their jobs were? Paul watered it. I mean, Paul planted it. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. I, I, in a way, what I feel like I wanted to do for you today is take a little bit of the weight and pressure that you might feel about telling people evangelism. Because sometimes I feel like it's all on me. Like I've got to convict them. I've got to interest them in it, convict them of their sin, get them to repent, make them cry. You ever feel that way? (laughs) I want them on their knees. I want them confessing every sin. And then it doesn't happen. And then I feel like a failure. Because like God, I should be able to make people come to Christ and convince them you're true. And I feel like what he's saying is, no, that's my job. Your job is to just open your mouth and speak what I've told you to speak. It's my job to make the change in their hearts. And he goes on. He says, it's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. I I want you to notice something right there. The seed is growing, but it still hasn't even turned into the plant yet. God is working on people when you don't even realize it. And I don't want you to feel like it's your job to produce a Christian plant. Does that make sense? 
a plant. It's not your job to make converts. It's his job. It's our job to do the talking and to plant the seeds and maybe do some watering. And then he is the one that brings the increase. The one who plants and the one who waters work together for the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their hard work. For we both, we are both God's workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So let me ask a question. This is not meant to make you feel bad. But I do want to, I want you to feel a little of the pressure that I feel. When's the last time you did lead someone to Christ? When's the last time you talked to somebody or maybe answered a question or maybe made them wonder if God was true? When's the last time you had the opportunity to do that and planted a seed? Jesus, talking about seeds, he tells a story of the parable of the sower. I'll tell you, you know, the, the Bible continually talks about Israel being the land of milk and honey, the, flowing with milk and honey. And there are parts that are like that. You know what it really reminded me of? The whole time I was there, I kept thinking, this is just like San Diego. Because you got the same weather, basically, same plants, same dirt looking, and most of the dirt there is not great unless you water it. I kept thinking about that. And I kept thinking about Jesus' parable of the sower. And he talks about the way they, that the parable, it, it says that the farmer threw seed. So Jesus tells this story, and he says the farmer threw out his seed, and some of it fell on the footpath. Some of it fell on rocky soil, some of it on thorns, and some of it good soil. Now, anybody garden here? Anybody? Do you ever throw it, your seed, just throw it out there? Well, no. We want to prepare the soil, right? We want to get it right for where it is. Jesus gives an explanation of this, and I just want to walk us through it. He says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is God's word. The seeds that fell on the footpath represent those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it out of their hearts, and it prevents them from believing and being saved. I struggle with that. I want everybody to be saved. I want them to believe like I do. I want them to be grateful to Jesus and change the way they live. I want them, that seed, to grow in their hearts. But guess what? I don't make it grow. Do you see that? I can't change their heart. Jesus changes their heart. If they choose to close and harden their heart, then they do that. And I can't change that. Look at the next thing. He says, the seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message. They receive it with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while, then they fall away when they face temptation. Do you know anybody like that? Now that we can have, a, we can have something to do with because as a church, that's part of what we do is we hopefully are giving them depth in their relationship with Christ so that when temptation or things come, that they can withstand it. Hopefully, we are standing with people to help mitigate and change some of that. Then the next thing he says, the seeds that fell among thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by cares and riches and pleasures of this life. Anybody ever... Think about how contrasting that sounds. Did you hear what he said? It's, they're crowded out by what? Cares and riches? How can you have cares and riches and pleasures? You know why? Because when you, you are drawn away by pleasures and riches, they crowd out the gospel in your life. They insulate you from feeling the need for a God that, that loves you and cares for you. They make you feel self-sufficient that you don't need him. And the truth is, just as much the cares are a a problem, so much so riches can be a problem. Now, Jesus never said that riches were wrong. He never did. 
It's not that way. Now, the Bible does say that, that the, the love of money is the root of all evil, but not the money itself. It's what it can do to you, though. But both of those things can choke it out and make you reject the gospel. And so they never grow into maturity. And then the last one, the seeds that fell on good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. Wow. This amazes me. As I hear this, it just blows my mind. And I just kept thinking more and more about harvest and soil. And as I walked and saw people's faces, I just wondered, God, what kind of soil is this person I'm talking to right now? What, I know you want me to throw seed out there. And I just, it, it, it became almost a relief because it wasn't my job to make them accept it or believe it or for their heart to be changed. That's God's job. Does that make sense? I hope it does, and I hope it takes some pressure off you. Because I think what happens a lot of times, we hesitate to do anything because we think if it's not going to go all the way or if I can't convince them, then I don't have enough to give. But you do. You have the seed of the gospel to give. One last section of Scripture, and, and this is it. Let me just end with this today. Scripture clearly tells us at one point Jesus took his disciples to Samaria. And it says in there he had to go there. And as he went to Samaria... Jesus' disciples went in town to talk, to get food and all that. And then Jesus was out talking to the lady, the woman at the well, we call that. And in his conversation with her, he plants seeds, he has a discussion. She realizes he's the Messiah. She goes and says, I'm going to tell everybody. And she brings this crowd back to Jesus. As that's happening, the disciples get back and they say to him, "Uh, Master Rabbi, we got you some food. They say, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replies, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone, they ask each other? Then Jesus explains, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But then he says, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester? Here's what I want to leave you with today. Just, a, just an odd thought. As you drove through Israel, we did see fields that were white. But I wonder if what Jesus was talking about in that moment wasn't actually fields. What if what, if what he was talking about is the crowd of people coming to see him? Because, you know, if you think about the picture of that setting, Jesus was talking to the woman. She went and got people. The disciples were gone. They walk up not knowing a thing. And then when he said, the fields are white with harvest, what if what he pointed at was all the people coming to hear? Because most people there wear white or linen or, you know, lighter colored things. And I bet you the people walking kind of look like, like maybe wheat flowing in the wind as a field. And do you hear what he said there? What has been planted in their hearts. Jesus planted in their hearts. Here's what I want to leave you with today. The disciples didn't plant that seed. Jesus did. But then they got to harvest it. Have you ever thought about this? Anybody here? When I was a kid growing up in California, there's so much that grows there, it's insane. We would go after, after every season, a lot of times we would go and we'd plant plums after the after the. A uh, company had already gotten rid of all the plums out of the orchard. They let people in. You pay, I don't know what it was. It was cheap. You know, like you pay like a quarter for a, a, a paper bag full of plums. So we'd go through the trees and plant plums. Have you ever done that? 
Probably we don't have plums, huh? Have you ever picked an orange? Have you ever picked an avocado? I've picked a lot of fruit. You know what's true? I never thought about this till, till two weeks ago. When fruit is ripe, it's easy to pick. Have you ever noticed that? If it's not ripe, you jerk on it and the whole limb shakes and you're like, oh, this one's not ready, right? Do you ever think about that? People are kind of like that. I think what I've been doing for a long time is pulling on people, but the fruit's not ripe. And then I'm frustrated because it doesn't come off in my hand and they aren't convinced, but that's not my job. And I'm not, it's also not my job to ripen that fruit. That's God's job. My job is to plant the seed and water and plant and water. And if I get to pick it and it's ripe, that's even better. But that's not always the case. The fact is, we don't always get to pick. And sometimes you're going to pick fruit and you're going to harvest where somebody else planted and watered. And that's what Jesus was talking about that day. Because as that crowd came, Jesus had planted the seed. And then the disciples are going to go work the crowd and help them learn about the kingdom. And the fact is, they had nothing to do with that crowd coming to them. I really believe this. I believe we're in for a harvest in this country, and I believe God is doing something. And I believe that it's our job to keep planting and watering. And you never know what's going to come out of those seeds you plant. You don't know, and that's okay. If I could have Pastor Nick join me up here. I want to pray with you today. I want to, I want to open these altars, and I want to have time for prayer as we close the service today. I really feel like God is calling us to be faithful planters. And in some cases, you get to harvest. But what he's calling us to is to plant those seeds. And every one of us has a, has a field to plant in. And again, it might be your high school. It might be your middle school. It might be your job. It might be your neighborhood. It might be somebody you play, play maybe sports with or cards with or somebody you've known for a long time. It might be an aunt or an uncle. It might be whoever it is. But the harvest is out there. And there are people who desperately need to know Jesus. And you have a seed to plant I think maybe we should change uh, the way we look at this and we should all be farmers you know sometimes we get to harvest but there's a lot that goes in before the harvest there's a lot of soil that needs turned over and there's times where it needs watered and there's seeds that need planted and sometimes there's fertilizer and there's a lot of work that goes into things before the harvest comes what I want is for you to take that weight off you that not every person you talk to is going to be the one that needs to know. So let's do this, if you would, with me. If you're prepared to help pray, if you would go ahead and already come forward. But for the rest of us, I just want you to shut your eyes for a minute. I want to ask you a couple questions. I never want to take this for granted because there may be people in this room and it's time to harvest. And somebody told you about Jesus or maybe you've heard a sermon or maybe you've, God's been working on your heart in some other way. Maybe there's a situation in your life and you realize that today you need Jesus. That today's the day where you want to surrender to him and say, not my way, but your way. Maybe you've never invited him to come in and to know you, but you want to know him today. And we would like to pray with you. I'm curious if there's anybody in the room like that today that you want to raise your hand and tell me, yes, Pastor Dennis, I want to know Jesus. I want to be a Christian. Anybody like that, just raise your hand. Maybe God's been working on you. Here's what I'd like to do then for the rest of us. If there's anything that you need prayer for, would you all stand? If there's anything you'd like prayer for, for any reason, we are here to pray for you. It could be if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It can be a specific healing need, maybe a situation you're walking through. 
these people here are up, up here to pray for you and to help God help you work this out. But as you're standing here, I want to just close with this thought here with you. I'm curious, with your eyes closed for a second, I'm just wondering if maybe that some of you are kind of like me and you've thought, man, I'm frustrated because I talked to these people and they haven't changed. But I'm wondering if you know somebody, if maybe as even I've been talking, you wonder, maybe God dropped a name or a, a face in your heart right now that you thought, yes, I need to plant a seed with that person. Anybody like that, that you say, yes, I know there's somebody I need to plant a seed with. Anybody at all, would you raise your hand? I just want to pray with you. I see those hands. Okay. Well, let's do this. Let's take a moment and pray, and then I'll close the service in a second here. But if you need prayer for anything at all, we want to pray with you this morning. Come on down. Father, we need your wisdom. God, I just pray that as we encounter people in all these areas of our life, everything that we do, I pray, God, that you would lead us and guide us. God, I pray for the seeds that we plant. I pray for the soil of their hearts. God, you would be doing the work even when we don't see it, that you would be working in their lives in ways that are beyond our comprehension and our knowledge, that you would make their soil right for for hearing the word and that you would continue to help that seed to grow and flourish in their lives. 
And Father, we pray for this harvest that you are bringing. And we pray, God, that people would come to know you as Savior. Use us in all of these ways. Help us, God, as we live our life for you in front of people so that every time they see us, that they would praise you in every one of those situations. We give you praise for things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go plant some seeds today. Bless you guys.